pray with me, church. Oh, Lord in heaven, we, we do pray to you this morning that your spirit would so richly indwell us that our hearts would indeed forever be encouraged to chase hard after you, Lord. We recognize as we gather this morning that there is always this tendency, this, this pull of the world and this, this, this fleshly nature inside of us that is always seeking to draw us away from your side, that is always driving us to chase after the things of this world. We pray, God, that you would work in our hearts through your word and through the encouragement of the brothers and sisters gathered here today that we would know there is no greater joy, no, no treasure that this world could ever offer us that would be greater than the treasure of knowing you. And so, Father, as we worship you this morning, as we hear from your word this morning, we pray that as the calendar turns over from August to September, as we change over from one season to the next, the season of summer to the season of fall, that we would know in all this, in all seasons, and in all circumstances, you are our greatest joy and help us to pursue you. We pray these things this morning in the precious and wonderful name of Christ. Amen. Amen and good morning. You may be seated. I just want to welcome you here this morning to this gathering of First Baptist Church. We have a few visitors in the house this morning, and uh, we, want to, we want you to know, first-time visitors and guests, we welcome you, and we're glad that you were here worshiping with us this morning. We need to give you just a few uh, directions in terms of where you are allowed to go and not allowed to go so that we maintain our 50, our 50 number in terms of our gathering size. And so if you're here in the sanctuary or in the balcony this morning, I just want to remind you that in the event that you need to use a washroom, you make your way downstairs and any of those washrooms, you go down the stairs, you turn a hard left, and, and just behind the stairs there are two different washrooms, men and women's washroom. You're more than welcome to use either of those. For those of you who are gathering in the fireside room over here, this is considered a separate gathering, and those individuals are welcome to use the washrooms in the nursery. You just go through that back door there and uh, th that is attached to the fireside room, and there's a washroom there for your access. For those of you who are here, you're not allowed to go over there. And for those of you who are over there watching on the, on the projection there, you're not allowed to come in here. We need to maintain that, uh, that social distancing. And of course, all of our kids downstairs constitute their own gathering and have their own washroom. And we want to just remind you all of that this morning as we gather. A couple of other announcements I just want to make you aware of. First off, we had called for a work B scheduled for this next Saturday, September the 12th. We got all of that work done. Uh, our headmaster, who is not only the head of our school, yes, give her a hand. Our headmaster is also a ruthless taskmaster. No, I'm just joking. I'm just joking. Um, she really encouraged us to get uh, this fencing up for this playground. She strongly encouraged us, I'll put it that way. And so we did, and we did. We got it done, and we want to say thank you uh, to Dustin Patterson and Will Ireland uh, for coming out and helping get that, that uh, fence up across the lot there. We're, we're grateful to Kelson Group. Uh, yes, absolutely. Give them a hand. People say our worship services go too long. It's because of the announcements. You guys are clapping all the time. And that's great. I'm not being critical. I don't think our worship, I could go longer. I'm, I'm just saying. Um, but we, uh, we, just want you, we just want to say thank you to those individuals. So the work bee this coming, uh, this coming weekend is canceled. Uh, new members class is going to be on September the 20th and the 27th. Those are Sundays following the morning worship service. And uh, so if you're interested in participating in that, we would Hardly welcome you to come and find out. It's an opportunity for you to learn all about our church, our statement of faith, what it is we believe, and how we practice our faith. Uh, in order to help inform you, those of you who have been visiting with us for some time, 
so that you can uh, prayerfully decide whether or not this is the family that God has for you or, or whether or not you need to begin searching for somewhere else for the Spirit to guide you to a different church family. Of course, we want you to stay here. This is the right one. Yeah, if you hear something different, we'll pray for you. So, <laughs> in all honesty, where the Lord takes you, we, we wish nothing but the best and pray nothing but blessings for, for you. But we want you here, just so you know. Um, nursery. So we, one of the things we've been noticing over the summer months in terms of the pandemic are our, our, our nursery moms, moms who have kids who are infant, uh, they haven't been coming. And the reason for that is because uh, they've been coming, but we, don't, we haven't had a manned nursery. We, in other words, they have, they've had to, to sit together and look after their little ones together. And um, they just decided, you know, the streaming is so good. Why come to watch a stream in a classroom downstairs uh, where the audio isn't the greatest when we could just stay at home and, and it'd, be, it'd be better on our TV at home? And uh, so we, we've been really appreciative of that, that our, our infant moms are staying at home, and we determined what we needed to do is try to find a way to have staffed nurseries so that our moms could come and fellowship and, uh, and enjoy the company of each other. And so starting next Sunday, the nursery will be uh, staffed by volunteers, and it'll be up and running. And for those of you who are moms with infant children, there are still a few extra precautions we need to take as regards COVID-19 protocols, but we'll tell you about those details. Uh, we do ask that you be particularly mindful. Uh, when we start next Sunday, you'll be given a uh, pager. And in addition, there's a little blurb that might flash across the screen here, a number. You need to be mindful of that. And if you're paged to go and attend to your child, uh, you do need to go and look after that. And there's a few other little details around that. So um, that's in the event your child has a diaper that needs to be changed or something along those, those lines. And so uh, we'll be talking to moms about that in the intervening weeks. But we do want you to know that we love you, we want to fellowship with you, and we enjoy you, and we miss you. And so uh, we are going to try to pull off a staffed nursery. So if you're interested in volunteering in the nursery, by all means, we would love to have you help out. Please speak to Kyla Blindberg, and she can, uh, she can explain all the intricacies of volunteering and, and get you set up with that. Wednesday Night Fellowship is also going to be resuming. September 30th, we will be having a meal together. In the past... We're excited to get back together and eat. Absolutely. I'm excited to get back together and eat with you as well. Um, in the past, we've done potluck. And again, COVID-19, we can't really do that anymore. So we will be having a fully cooked, fully prepared meal in-house. Special thank you to Alicia, and Alicia Patterson and Shanti Claycamp. If you're interested, if you have Wednesday afternoons free and you don't, you'd like to come and, and work with the ladies in the kitchen on Wednesday afternoons preparing that meal for Wednesday evenings, we would love to have any of you uh, come and participate in that. Uh, those two ladies will be overseeing it because we want to make sure all of our food is prepared according to food safe guidelines in accordance with the new work safe rules surrounding uh, food preparation and COVID-19. So we need you to come. If you're interested in volunteering, we want you to come, but there is some extra little extra training you need to go through before you can serve that food. And for all the rest of us who want to come and just enjoy that great food, and I know what you're thinking. I'm thinking the same thing. Taco night was the best night, was it not? And God's people said, I say amen. What? <laughs> Butter chicken was also pretty good. I'm not going to lie. The butter chicken was pretty good, too. But anyway, we invite you guys to come out for that. Um, because we're going to be preparing all the food in-house, 
in order to ensure it's, it's cooked according to COVID you know, food safe guidelines, um, you're going to have to pay for a ticket to come. It's only $5 a ticket for adults and $2.50 for children. That is as cheap as we can make it as we looked at 50 people, feeding 50 people, and putting all the food together for that. But it helps us if you buy a ticket because, number one, it pays for the groceries. Number two, we can tell who's coming and who's not coming, which helps us with the count towards 50, 50 individuals. And for those of you who are not able to come but would still like to follow along with the Bible study and the uh, prayer time afterwards, we're working on a streaming option. I can't make any promises about that at this point, but we are working on a streaming option. But nevertheless, we just encourage you guys to be able to come and participate. This week, we are uh, starting school. And we're excited like you would not believe. Uh, we are ready to get back in the classroom. Uh, for those of you who don't have kids, our children have been out of the classroom since March. Uh, we haven't had our kids here in the school to see them in a really long time. And we have so many kids, obviously, that are in the school from our church, but there are very many kids as well that are not from our church. And I haven't gotten to see those kids in forever, and I personally am just super grateful to the Lord to be able to see these guys again. So I pray that this will be a, a great school year. I'm excited for it, and I'd ask that you pray for it as well. As I shared uh, with our school community on Thursday night, the prophet Jeremiah makes the statement, let not the rich man boast in his wealth. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the strong man boast in his strength. Let him who boasts boast in this, that he knows the Lord. We took the foundational skills assessment exam this last year. It's the government exam for grade four, grade seven students, elementary students. And because we are such a small school, we were not considered statistically significant enough to be included in the results that Fraser Institute puts out every year. And you may be aware Fraser Institute ranks all of the elementary schools, all of the high schools in British Columbia in terms of how they're performing academically in terms of literacy and numeracy, that is math and language arts. And it does a ranking in terms of which schools are performing well and which, student, which schools are not performing well. And I am pleased to announce to you this morning that even though we were not included in the Fraser Institute's school rankings because we were too small of a school, you should know, First Baptist Church, that our teachers and our students are doing a fantastic job. In terms of all of the schools in Kamloops, do you want to know where First Baptist Classical Academy ranks academically? We tied for first place. We tied for first place with St. Anne's Catholic School down the, down the street here. And that was a surprise to me. I knew we were going to be good, like maybe five top, top five, top ten percent, but to tie for first was just an amazing answer to prayer. Nevertheless, my message to the teachers and my message to our students and our message to you is this. Doing well academically, being number one academically, is not the thing that we need to be proud about. It's not the thing we should be boasting about. The goal for our school is and always will be helping our students come to know the Lord. And to that end, our prayer needs to be that more and more of our students would surrender to Christ in faith and would seek to live a life that obeys him, that glorifies him. And so even though we're doing great academically, and that's a wonderful thing to give thanks to the Lord for, it's not enough. We should be praying for our students for their salvation. And so I'd like for you to join us this year as we pray that more and more of our students 
would understand that behind every subject, math, English, whatever it may be, there's a God who gives us these things. Language is a gift. Mathematic is a gift. All given to us that we might know him, that we might more fully worship him. And so we ask that you just pray for us to that end. School starts Tuesday. And for those of you who don't know, it's a half day. Kindergarten, the lower learning group is going to start in the morning, and the upper group is going to start in the afternoon. And so we ask that you just be in prayer for that. That about does it for announcements this morning. And so uh, as the announcements come to an end, this is the time that we normally collect an offering. Of course, our ushers will not be going around collecting an offering. I draw your attention to the two drop boxes, the back of the sanctuary and the back of the fireside room, respectively. You're more than welcome to drop your offering in there, either at the start or the conclusion of the worship service or any time. But we want to just pause for a moment and we want to reflect on all that God has given to us and say thank you. And so as we, as we would normally collect an offering at this time, I just invite you to join me in prayer. Would you please bow with me in prayer? Father in heaven, we just say thank you for the amazing gifts that you have given to us, Lord. We say thank you that we'll finally, this coming Tuesday, get to see many of our friends that we haven't gotten to see really since March, Lord. Father, we pray that all has been well with them over those intervening months. We pray, Lord, that when we reconnect, when we, when we see these students again, that their hearts would be encouraged to worship you. Father, we love our students, and we're grateful that they're smart. We knew they were smart. But, Lord, we wish, we pray that they would know you. So we pray for their salvation. We thank you for giving us these students, and we pray, Lord, that you would help us to be faithful stewards in their education and discipleship. Help us as we embark on another school year. Lord, we also just pray for the offering that we're, we're giving every day here, Lord. Lord, we know that all that we have, including these students, but in addition, uh, the finances, the clothing, the homes that we live in, all that we have comes from your hand. We see that. We know that. We give thanks to you, Lord, for giving it to us. And as an act of faith, we take out of the abundance of all that you have given, and we give it back, Lord. This humble offering, we give it back. And we pray that you would take this offering and that you would see it, Lord, as an expression of faith and commitment to you. We pray that you'd bless and multiply this offering and that you would use it, God, to make the name of Jesus famous all over the earth. God, as we rejoice to know Christ and to walk in a personal relationship with you through him, our desire is that the nations might be able to hear this same gospel and that they would rejoice the way that we rejoice, that they would know you as we have come to know you, that they would be forgiven of their sins, that they would believe in what Christ has done on the cross. Our prayer, Lord, is that you would reconcile the world to yourself. And so we know, Lord, this is a humble offering that we have given, but we know you can take small things and turn them into big things. And so we pray, God, you take this humble offering, that you would bless it and multiply it and use it to bring honor and glory to your son's name. And it is in his name that we pray this morning. Amen. Amen. And as we continue in our worship service this morning, I'd like to invite Aileen Adams, if she would, please come. This is that portion of the, of the service in which we have the scripture reading. And so I'd like to invite you, church, as you are able, would you please stand in honor of the reading of God's word? taken from Acts chapter 17, verses 10 to 15. 
Paul and Silas in Berea. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. When there, now these Jews were here. Sorry, I'm not reading well this morning. Now these Jews were more than noble, those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if there was were things to see if there were things were so. Many of them therefore believed with not very I guess it's too small print for me. What do I put here? Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if if things, these things were so. Many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned the word of God was proclaimed by Paul in Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea. But Silas and Timothy remained with them. Those who, those who were conducted, Paul brought up as far as Athens. And after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy, Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. This is the word of the Lord.
I invite you to turn in your Bible with me to Acts chapter 17. We're going to be looking at verses 10 to 15 this morning. You might want to also find your way to Luke chapter 8. In order to really understand what's going on in Acts chapter 17 and the significance of it, we need to lay it alongside a parable that Christ tells in Luke chapter 8. Before we jump in this morning, I just want you guys to know I I love you, and I, I love that you interrupt the announcements with clapping. Isn't it good to be excited about what the Lord is doing here this morning? Amen. I, I just want to apologize. I kind of made a joke about, about it, and I hope you didn't take it the wrong way. I love that you guys are excited. You forgive me. Thank you. Thank you. Acts chapter 17, as is our custom, I want to draw your attention to one verse. I'm just going to read that verse for you this morning, and then uh, we'll pray. We'll ask the Holy Spirit to help us to get involved in our hearts this morning, to illuminate the text before us. And then we will begin. In Acts chapter 17, again, we're going to be looking at verses 10 uh, to 15. But I want you to look specifically at verse 11 this morning. Verse 11 says, Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They were more noble, noble noble-minded, noble-hearted. They were more noble. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things, that is, the things that Paul was preaching, they examined the word daily to see if these things were true. So let's, uh, let's bow for a word of prayer and ask the Father to help us. Lord in heaven, we just say thank you for your word. We say thank you, Lord, for speaking to us. Father, in our lives, there are many times in which we have listened to others. We have allowed other words, not pure, not true like you, to influence our hearts, to lead us astray. We have, at times, welcomed deception and been self-deceived. Father, this morning, our prayer is that we would know that you and you alone are to be trusted unreservedly, without any hesitation, and without doubt. Our prayer this morning, Lord, is that as we hear your word and as we look at the example of these Bereans, our prayer is that you would make us noble-minded. Do this work, we pray, through your word. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Elijah has been taught to listen for the still, small voice. I'm sure many of you are familiar with the account from 1 Kings 19. The wicked queen Jezebel is out on a rampage to have Elijah executed for all that he's been proclaiming, all the prophesying and all the declarations regarding the word of the Lord. And so Elijah has fled from Jezebel. He has fled to Mount Oreb. And as he's there on Mount Oreb, he is is pleading before the Lord. There's a moment of desperation. There's a moment of, uh, you might say, despair. And the Lord says to him, go and stand on the mountain before the Lord. Elijah finds his way into a small cave. And as he's sitting there waiting for the word of the Lord, there suddenly comes a huge wind, a tempest that shakes the mountain. And the scripture tells us that Elijah didn't go out to hear the word of the Lord because he knew that the Lord's voice was not in the wind. Next, there was a tremendous fire. And it says that, Elijah didn't go out because he knew that the Lord's word, his voice, was not in the fire. And then eventually there is an earthquake. And 
Elijah doesn't go out because he knows that the Lord's word isn't in the earthquake. And the text tells us that there was a low whisper. And when Elijah heard that whispering, that low sound, then he left the cave to go and present himself before the Lord, to hear the word of the Lord. What Elijah is demonstrating to us and what we need to see this morning is that the Lord does speak. And he would speak to us if we would take care to listen to him. I think one of the things we can draw from that particular text in in 1 Kings is that God doesn't always yell. He prefers to speak to us quietly. But we almost always prefer that he would just yell. We come to the book of Acts chapter 17. And we have two cities set side by side. We have the city of Thessalonica set alongside the city of Berea. Paul has gone to Thessalonica. He has preached the word of God. He has reasoned. He has argued. He has made incredibly persuasive and logical arguments from the scriptures, the very book that these Jews claim to bow before, to admire, to revere. And yet making that argument from the scriptures does not fill, in, fill it within their hearts a sense of awe and a desire to trust in Christ. Rather, the scripture tells us that the Jews in Thessalonica, rather than being filled with awe and bowing before the Lord and receiving the gospel, they are filled with jealousy. They know that if Christ has come, that if Jesus is the Messiah, they lose their place as intercessors. They lose their place as religious leaders, those who would stand before God's people and God because Jesus is the intercessor. So they pursue Paul. He flees south of Thessalonica to Berea. It's not the destination you would expect him to go. By going to Berea, he steps off the Ignatia Way, the path that goes to Rome, the path, the easy highway that they would have expected him to take. He does not go along the coastal route south. Rather, he goes southwest to the plains, to the steppes on these particular mountains. And it's there in this little town of Berea, a town about 100 miles southwest by west of Thessalonica that Paul goes. You wouldn't expect him to go there. We wonder, we can speculate as to why he took that path. Of all the different choices, he could have gone on the highway to Rome, he could have gone on a coastal road south, but no, he goes through the more difficult path to Berea. We get the idea that he understood just how enraged the Thessalonican Jews were with him, that they were out to get him, and so it, we can speculate that he's trying to find a place off the beaten path where they won't find him. But though he is trying to escape their persecution, He is by no means being silent regarding the preaching of God's word. He shows up in Berea, and just as he's done everywhere else before, he goes into the synagogue and he starts preaching the truth of Jesus Christ. It says in verse 10, The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. I just love that. You don't have to wonder, what's he going to do once he shows up? Is he going to go find a hotel room? Is he going to unpack his bags? Is he going to do some laundry? Maybe do some grocery shopping? No. Scripture doesn't care about any of that. Paul certainly didn't prioritize any of that. I'm sure he looked after those needs, but the Scripture tells us time and again, when he shows up in a particular town, he has one item on his agenda. He has one thing he wants to do, and he wants to go and preach the word of God. And he goes into the synagogues and he begins there. He does it here in Berea, even though he just got chased out of Thessalonica. He's not slowed down by the persecution. He's not in any way daunted or 
or uh, filled with fear and trepidation, he keeps on preaching. Something really interesting happens here. Preaching the gospel, after we've seen Paul time and again go and preach the gospel and get persecuted for it, Paul sets it up. They go, they're fleeing, they're running for their lives as is normal. They show up in Berea. He goes in just like he always does. He's preaching the gospel. It's at this moment you expect a text to say, and they picked up a bunch of stones and tried to kill him for it. I mean, that's what it's said every other time. But here it's different. Verse 11, these Jews, Luke says, were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. The text tells us that they were noble-minded. What does this word mean? When I say noble to you, you might have a couple of different definitions bouncing around in your head. You might be thinking of the nobility, which is to say the royal class, those individuals who sit in kings' thrones. Or you might be thinking of something virtuous, to be noble-minded. What's the relationship between these things? Why is it that we have a term denoting the nobility, and then from that we also have another term that comes from that that says you can be noble-minded? In my research of this word this, particular, this last week, it was interesting to me that this word was used to describe nobles who relished their position of authority and governance and acted in such a way as not to lose that position of governance, that position of influence, that prestigious, advantageous position of being a part of the ruling class. You might say that in its earliest forms, this word had almost a Machiavellian flavor to it. These guys would do whatever they needed to do in order to retain their power. Now, in the days of Rome, in the days of Caesar, one of the surest, quickest ways that you could lose your position as a governing official in Caesar's Roman Empire was if the city or the precinct over which you were ruling rose up in rebellion. In other words, if you levied taxes in such a way as to line your pockets, but it was excessive, and the peasantry got upset about it, and they rioted, and they revolted, and Caesar heard about it, you'd be in big trouble. Which means that there was this tension in every governor's position. They needed to collect taxes. Of course, they wanted to take advantage of their position in order to enrich themselves. But they knew they could only press their luck so far with Rome because if the peasantry rioted, they'd lose everything. And so to be noble-minded, the word in its earliest form indicated you would act with such a way as to take care of the population, the citizenry around you, not because you really cared about them, but because you didn't want them getting angry at you. As this word has evolved over time, it's come to mean something different. And by, we, by the time we arrive here in the first century, over hundreds of years, what this word has slowly evolved to mean is that you act with such regard for your citizens that you act in such a way that you want what is best for everyone. The word starts off with this idea that you have a position which you have inherited but as that word evolves over time, it comes to mean that you do have regard for your position, this place you've been assigned in life, and you don't want to lose that place, but you know that the way not to lose that place now is to act in such a way 
that you take care for what is in the best interests of everyone around you. I want you to have both of these ideas in your mind as we reconsider this particular verse. Paul comes and he preaches the gospel. And Luke, observing their response to the gospel, says they were noble-minded. Now, what Luke means there is as, this, as Paul comes to preach the gospel to these guys in Berea, they are thinking, number one, we're getting something here. We're inheriting something here. We're receiving something, and we need to take care to know what it is that we're receiving. Number two, we want to act in such a way in the reception of this news that our response is beneficial, first for us, that we will steward what we're inheriting in a good way, but also that it would be beneficial for everyone around us. Now, right off the hop, you're thinking, basically, Paul showed up, he preached the gospel, and they just fell on their faces and said, woohoo, this is great, this is the news we've always been waiting for, and they just accepted it uncritically. But that's not what they did. If you look closely at the text, it says, these Jews were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica. They, number one, received the word, they stepped back, they sat down, they listened, Paul preached, they heard what he had to say, they listened carefully to what he was explaining to them. And then number two, it says they examined the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. When we see that the Bereans were noble-minded, our 21st century context leads us to assuming that essentially what they did was they heard Paul preaching and they just accepted it as the word of God and said, hallelujah, praise the Lord, we're in. They did that, but they didn't do it in an uncritical manner. They understood that whatever Paul was preaching, their response to his preaching was going to not only have a significant effect on their lives, but whatever their response was going to be to Paul's preaching, it would have a significant effect on the lives of their children, on the lives of everyone who lived in the city of Berea that did not yet know the Lord. It would impact their witness, and it would impact their, their posterity for generations to come. In other words, when it says that they accepted, that they received Paul's word in a noble-minded way, they're acting in order to determine if what Paul is saying is true, in order that if it is true, they will celebrate it. But if it isn't true, they will denounce Paul, they will reject him, and they will send him packing, just like everyone else has done. That's the difference. In Thessalonica, Paul argues with them for four straight weeks from the scriptures. It says on three back-to-back Sabbaths. So we know he shows up, he's there for a week, and then maybe he goes on for three more weeks, and he's arguing, and he's arguing. They're looking at the scriptures, but they're not looking at the scriptures with a view to seeing whether or not these things are true. Right off the hop, the Jews in Thessalonica, Paul shows up, he begins preaching, and their first thought without considering what he's saying is, how do we get rid of this guy? Of course, some in Thessalonica receive the word and get saved. But when he comes to Berea, they gladly receive what he says, but not in an uncritical manner. They're looking at the scriptures to determine if what he is saying is true. They make place to hear the preached word. They receive it. 
They lay aside their preconceived notions, all their ideas of what Messiah might be like, all their ideas of what the coming kingdom of Christ might look like. They lay that aside. They hear Paul preaching the cross. Then they think to themselves, there could be some truth in this. We're not sure, but our decisions will impact our inheritance for all of eternity. Our decisions will impact our children after us, and it will impact our witness to the world around us. So you know what? We had better take a look. Is that our heart today, church? Do we see that the hearing of God's word is just as important as the preaching of God's word? Because that's the message that Luke is driving home to us in this particular passage regarding the Jews in Berea. I want you to flip with me, if you will, to Luke chapter 8. We're going to be looking at Luke chapter 8, verses 4 to 18. And the purpose of this parable, and I want you to see this at the outset before we dive into it, the purpose of this parable that Jesus is about to tell is that how you hear is just as important as how the preacher preaches. Take care to hear just as the preacher is instructed to take care in his preaching. That's what Jesus is getting at right here. And I want to start off by giving you an illustration of this parable. I want to imagine yourselves coming to church one Sunday. And because football season is approaching, and you guys know I'm a football fan, I'm going to use a football analogy. Imagine you come to church one Sunday, and you file in, and you sit down, and I stand up, and I say, good morning, brothers and sisters. I'm so glad you're here. This morning, we begin with a parable. There are four kinds of quarterbacks. One quarterback throws a perfect spiral. Another quarterback throws a lopsided wobble. A third quarterback throws passes that just arch way up high in the sky, and when they come down, anybody and their dog can pick it off besides the receiver. And the fourth quarterback throws tight spirals and direct laser beams directly to his receivers. I say that to you, and you're like, okay. And then I say... Let him who has ears to hear, hear. (laughs) And then I say, let's pray. The end. Now, that's entertaining, isn't it? You laugh because you're like, what? That makes no, what are you, like, what? That doesn't even make any sense. That's how this parable would have first been heard. You see, we read the parable And then we read Jesus' interpretation of the parable, and we always put the two things together, and then we think, oh, that's so simple, that's straightforward. But understand, these guys in this day and age lived an agrarian lifestyle. Everything was oriented around planting and sowing and harvesting, and what he says to them is ludicrous because it makes no sense. Like, what are you saying? Why are you saying this? How we get to the end of this passage is important But we don't get there in the right way if we don't understand how we begin. We begin with a parable which on its face does not make sense. And that makes all the difference in terms of how we hear its interpretation. In Luke chapter 8, beginning in verse 4, 
When great crowds were gathering and people from town after town came to him. In other words, when the multitudes were crushing in upon Jesus, they had heard, the getting is good up in Galilee. Bring your sick one. Bring your your loved one who's struggling with some sort of a disease or infirmity. Put him on a wheelbarrow. Throw him in a cart. Do whatever you got to do. Drag him up to Galilee. And there's a guy up there who can heal them no matter what. When that becomes the focus point, when great massive crowds are gathering around Jesus for a variety of reasons, Jesus sees this as a critical moment to put to them a parable. And it says, verse 5, a sower went out to sow his seed. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and it was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it. And some fell on the rock, and as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. And some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. And as he said these things, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. No different than the quarterback parable I started off with. If you're there and you hear that, you're like, "Eh? What? Verse 9. When his disciples asked him what this parable meant, He said, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. Now the parable is this, the seed is the word of God. The one along the path are those who have heard, but then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts, so that they may not believe and be saved. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while, and in time of testing fall away. And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear. But as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. And as for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, Hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience or perseverance, as it might also be translated. No one, after lighting a lamp, covers it with a jar or puts it under a bed, but puts it on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. For nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be known and come to light. Take care, then, how you hear. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he thinks, notice this, even what he thinks he has will be taken away. Now, what an incredible parable told on the value of hearing. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. At the end of verse 8, Oh, sorry, I'm, I'm skipping way ahead. There are four responses to the preaching of God's word. And Jesus lays them out for us here in this particular parable. And what I want you to see at the outset is that each of these responses has to do with how we hear. Each one of these responses is relevant not to the preaching, but to the one who is listening to the preaching. There are four responses. As Jesus says in this particular parable, there are four kinds of soil. And what we want to notice especially is that Jesus interprets every single one of them explicitly as four ways of hearing the word. It's all about hearing. 
So here's the first response. Number one, verse 5, if you look back, verse 5 says that first, some seed, or in other words, some word, some preaching of the word, fell beside the road, and it was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it. Then you jump down to verse 12, and Jesus interprets what he means by that. Verse 12, he interprets, quote, those along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their heart, so they will not believe and be saved. Now that's the first kind of hearing. Number two, verse six, if you look back, and some seed fell on rocky soil, and as soon as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. And then look down to verse 13. This is where Jesus interprets it. Those on the rocky soil are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy. And these have no firm root. They believe for a while and in time of testing fall away. Now that's the second kind of hearing. Okay. Third. Verse 7, if you look back. Other seed fell among the thorns and the thorns grew up with it and choked it out. Verse 14 interprets, the seed which fell among the thorns are these who have heard the word, but as they go on their way, they are choked out with the cares and the worries and the riches and the pleasures of this life, and their fruit does not mature. That's the third kind of hearing. And finally, we come to the fourth kind of hearing. If you look back to verse 8, other seed fell into the good soil, and it grew up and produced a crop a hundred times as great, or it matured a hundredfold, or it yielded a hundredfold, as the case may be. And then verse 15, Jesus interprets. But the seed in the good soil, these are the ones who have heard the word in an honest and good heart, and they hold it fast and bear fruit with perseverance. That's a fourth kind of hearing. Now, in every single one of these, what I want you to notice is that Jesus is telling a parable about hearing, but the parable is told in such a way that it would make no sense if not for Jesus interpreting the parable. Jesus tells a parable, and the scripture is quite clear. He tells the parable for the sake of those who have ears to hear. At the end of verse 8, Jesus makes sure we get the point about hearing. He says, quote, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. That means it's not enough simply to have physical ears. The whole crowd had physical ears. Everybody heard what Jesus was saying. He must mean something more than that. Here we find that there is another kind of ear, that is, another kind of hearing that only certain kinds of people have. And those who can hear, he exhorts them to hear. In other words, what Jesus is saying is that there's a spiritual way of hearing. There's a way of hearing with the heart, where we take the things we're capable of hearing with our ears, but we turn them over and we look at them and we consider them from the place of our soul or our spirit. That's what Jesus is saying. And that's what he is calling for. To stress this issue of hearing even more, Luke then goes on to tell us how Jesus explained the purpose of the parables. In verses 9 to 10, it says, his disciples began questioning him. Now, is that where this began? Jesus sitting down with a group of his most closely associated disciples? No. The parable begins in verse 4, the crowds are coming to him. Then he tells this parable, which 
really wouldn't make any sense unless Jesus interpreted it. As we work our way through the parable, his disciples come to him privately and they say, what? Like, can you explain that to us? And then Jesus begins to explain it for their benefit. Jesus is teaching, but he's teaching in such a way that only those who really want Jesus can have him. Those who hear him but want him for something other than his leadership or his lordship in his life, they'll hear him and they will immediately assume he's crazy, good for healing, not so much with the spiritual truth side of things. And they'll dismiss him out of hand. Jesus tells this parable, and undoubtedly the same way that you all responded to my amazing parable about football, he'll say, what? They'll laugh. They'll be like, okay, whatever. This doesn't make any sense. But those who want Christ will come to him. But notice how they come. They come with questions. They come to listen. They come in humility. Whatever Jesus is about to say, however he's about to interpret it, they're going to listen. They're going to humble themselves before the word. They're going to receive it. Their approach unlocks the meaning of the parable. And this is the irony of the passage. Jesus is telling a parable about hearing, and most people would hear it, and because they will not accept Jesus as Lord, they'll dismiss it out of hand, proving that they're incapable of listening. Only those who want all of Christ in his entirety for all that he is and are willing to humble themselves and come to him and say, look, you said there's no such thing as a dumb question. I apologize. I'm about to ask what I am convinced is a dumb question. What in the world are you saying? And they humble themselves. They don't care how they look. They don't care that they might be perceived as being foolish or stupid or ignorant. They just want whatever Jesus is trying to tell them. And they want it from a heart that is prepared to surrender. These people get the parable explained, and then it makes perfect sense. If more of you loved football, you'd get what I was getting at. Or not. I'm just messing at this point. I hope that that makes sense to you. Uh, amen. Wouldn't that be... No, I should stop that. <clears throat> the effectiveness of hearing. This brings us to the last mention of this particular phrase in this text, and I'm actually quite surprised at where it comes from. It comes in a surprising place. You would have expected it to come right after the parable, right after verse 15, but it comes in verse 18. Jesus, if you look with me at verse 18, Jesus says, so, which is another way of saying therefore, or this is the conclusion of everything that I'm getting at. So, take care how you listen. Take care how you hear. That's the point of the text, and that's really the point of what Luke is getting at in Acts chapter 17 with the noble-minded Bereans. And that's my main point this morning for all of us. Let's take care how we hear First Baptist Church. Preaching is one thing, and it is crucial. There is an ethical and moral responsibility for the pastor or the preacher, whether it be myself, whether it be Pastor Al, Pastor Ryan, Pastor Tyler, soon to be pastor, God willing. How we preach burdens us with a tremendous responsibility before the Lord. He wants his word to be preached. We 
ethically must take great care to preach the word. We say these things all the time. But you ethically must take great care how you hear. And this is something that we may not say often enough. The purpose of this parable is that you will be careful in how you hear. What that means is preaching is crucial, preaching is important. There is a high ethical and moral requirement on the preacher to faithfully preach the word of God. But there is also a great and ethical responsibility on God's people to faithfully hear to receive and respond to the word of God. That's why I find this to be so extremely surprising where this falls at. Notice the reason given in the rest of verse 18 for why you should be so vigilant over how you hear. It says, for whoever has, to him more will be given. And you'll notice this last phrase, which is very interesting. And whoever does not have, even what he thinks he has shall be taken away from him. Now, here's the real point. Here's where the sharp word of God gets really pointed and starts to poke at us. Take care how you hear. Approach the task of hearing God's word, knowing that there's a moral responsibility on you to hear it the right way. To the one who has, he receives more. But to the one who has not, even what he thinks he has, it's going to be taken away from him. What does that mean? What does that refer to? There are two parts here. There's the positive and then the negative. The positive is obviously whoever has to him shall more be given. The negative, whoever does not have, even what he thinks he has, will be taken away. We start with the positive first. Whoever has to him shall more be given. This is refer, refers back to verse 8. At the end of the parable of the soils, Jesus said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Why? Because whoever has to him shall more be given. If you have spiritual ears, that is, you're able to hear, then you will be given understanding. The more understanding you have in one part of Scripture, then the more understanding you will be given in understanding other Scriptures. The disciples come to Jesus for the interpretation of the parable because they recognize him as the Lord, and as the Lord, he, has Lord, he is Lord over everything, including knowledge, which means if there's something funky about this parable and it doesn't quite make sense, their assumption is that they have not properly been taught by the Lord. Their assumption is not that the Lord is wonky and doesn't know what he's talking about. For a great many people in the crowds they hear this parable and they think to themselves, well, again, he's good for healing, but I'm not going to actually try to learn from him. They dismiss it out of hand. But for the disciples, they say, okay, I don't get this. The problem with the lack of understanding is not with my Lord. It's with me. And so in humility, they pursue the Lord which means that in pursuing the Lord, in humbling ourselves before him and continuing to go after him, the promise is there that in time, with careful pursuit and careful listening to the word of God, we will be rewarded with understanding. Now, this is a moment where we need to pause and reflect. How many of you have ever said 
to a pastor or, or a friend of yours who encouraged you to go to Bible study or something like this, you know, I would go, but honestly, I just don't understand what's going on. Is lack of understanding what's being taught at a Bible study a good reason not to go to a Bible study? If you can't say amen, say ouch. We've all been there. I don't get it. Sinful reaction, I'm out. God-honoring reaction, I don't get it. I will press in deeper. I will stay after. I will ask more questions. I will ask for supplemental study materials to come home with me. I don't care how I look. I don't care how I'm perceived. I want to hear the Lord. That's the first takeaway there. But you'll notice that Jesus promises more than just knowledge and understanding. He promises fruit. In verse 15, as he's referring, as he's describing the fourth kind of soil, Jesus makes the statement, the seed in the good soil, these are the ones who have heard the word in an honest and good heart, and they hold it fast, and they bear fruit with, uh, ESV renders it patience. Another way to render that word is perseverance. In other words, they keep on bearing fruit even though there's difficulty involved, even though there's some element of suffering involved. They persevere or they're patient in going after it. Whoever has, Jesus says, to him more will be given. What they have already, as Jesus describes it here, is an honest and good heart. And the more that will be given, he says, is fruit. They bear fruit with perseverance, which means that in the receiving of the word, they are further pruned and further sanctified in order to bear more fruit. So hearing the word and pressing in to make sure you understand the word leads to greater knowledge of the scriptures, an ability to understand even more of the scriptures, But then, as you bear in and you press on to learn more, to understand more, there's another thing that God does in your life. He begins to work in you in such a way that as you have a good and honest heart, you begin to grow further in your goodness. We might say you begin to grow further in your godliness, and you become more and more like the Lord. All of this leads him to his conclusion, take care or take heed how you hear. Hear with spiritual ears, not just the ears on your head. Hear with an honest and good heart, not a deceptive heart, not a lazy heart, not a lackadaisical heart. But what about this other part of it? Whoever does not have, even what he thinks he has, will be taken away. What does that refer to? It refers to the other three soils, obviously, and it refers to a failure to hear with a good heart and with true spiritual ears. In each of the first three soils found in verses 12 to 14, there is a hearing of the word of God. They hear it. Somebody shows up, somebody preaches to them. Jesus is undoubtedly preaching to the masses and the multitudes there in in, uh, Judea. He's preaching. They hear it. Physical ears, it's going in. Okay, they're hearing it. But in each case, 
what they think they have, that is, what they think they are hearing, is taken away from them. Verse 12, the first soil, they think they have the word, but it says the devil snatches it away. Verse 13, the second soil, they think they have the word and they have true spiritual faith and joy. It appears that way, but they have no root to sustain them in their trial. Their faith is a sort of a superficial enthusiasm that is real only for fair weather days. When the trial comes, what they thought they had is quickly snatched away. Finally, in verse, thir- in verse 14, the third soil, they think they have the word of God, but when the worries and the riches and the pleasures of this life come, what they think they have is taken away, and they fail to bear fruit. So the point of verse 18 is to interpret what is happening in the four soils. Three times it comes true. Whoever does not have, even what he thinks he has, shall be taken away from him. And then the one time, the, the fourth soil, excuse me, the fourth soil, the opposite comes true. Whatever, whoever has, to him more shall be given. In other words, you've got four groups of people, three groups of people think they've got it, they hear it, they're like, yeah, that, that quarterback parable was awesome. I'm tracking. We want our quarterback to throw laser-like beam passes. There's no meaningful conclusion to that parable. I, I, hope, <laughs> I hope you're not waiting for it. <laughs> you kind of are, I can tell. These guys hear this parable of the four soils, and uh, they think they get it. And, and I'm just sitting here, again, with my quarterback analogy, and I'm like, what in the world do you think you get if you haven't gone to Jesus to have him explain it to you? This is where self-deception comes in. You think you get it. You think you understand. But do you? When it comes to hearing the word of God, is there really room for us to be pretty sure we get it? The gospel says that Jesus Christ came and died on the cross, that whosoever should believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. We are called to place our faith in Jesus, which means that at the outset of the gospel, it's about making sure you're trusting in someone outside of yourself. It's about making sure you're believing in Christ over and above the faith that you put in yourself. So when we come to church and we hear, if we don't understand and we walk away saying, well, I think I get it, good enough for me for today anyway, we have just made a pivotal, crucial mistake. We cannot believe in what Jesus is telling us. We cannot hope in Christ, the one who speaks, if we walk away saying, I'm pretty sure I got it. Because when you say that, you must still be assuming that you're getting it rather than knowing that you're getting it. And the only way that you will know that you get it is when you again look to Jesus in his word to confirm your understanding. Listen to me, church. I will make mistakes in the pulpit from time to time. I take great care to preach the word of God to you. I try to do it faithfully every week. I try to explain it in a way that is memorable, that you can understand where it just clicks. I try, but I'm just a man. 
and I make mistakes. This book never errs. If you come and you hear a sermon or you go to a Bible study and you hear a Bible study lesson and you're like, I mean, you know, there's just this shred of doubt. And you're like, mm, I, uh, I'm not sure. But yeah, you know, I'm pretty much, yeah, I'm okay, I'm okay, yeah. That is the wrong attitude. That is the wrong, wrong attitude. And it's dangerous because you're trusting in your ability to get it enough. And that means you're trusting in your ability to wing it. And if you're winging it or trusting in your ability to get it enough, at the end of the day, you're not getting him. Don't be like the three former soils that come along that hear the word of God, think they have it, but then even what they think they have, they lose it. Don't be like that. Be the one that says, I'm not even sure what in the world this guy just said to me, but he's the Lord, and I'm going to take the time and the care, because I'm not even sure what I've got here, but I'm going to make sure I know what it is I've got. And you're going to go and you're going to ask the questions. You're going to pursue it with a relentless, dogged determination. And lady, we will speak after this. So the scripture continues. We go back to, we go back to Acts chapter 17. And as we work our way through the text, it says, verse, uh, verse 12, Many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as the men. So the, the Jews in Berea, they believed. They looked at the scriptures. Paul preaches, and they began to look daily at the scriptures. They've received what he's saying, but they look to make sure they understand it. They look to make sure that what Paul is preaching lines up with the rest of the scriptures. They're looking at it. They're examining it daily to make sure it all fits together, that it makes sense. And then we see the opposite response. Paul has been in Thessalonica, and Paul has preached to the Jews in Thessalonica, and they didn't want it, and they ran him out of town. He flees a hundred miles south off the beaten path, and they chase him there. Small little town, Berea, nothing like Thessalonica. And yet it isn't enough for them that he has been driven out of Thessalonica they are filled with such hatred for the message that he is preaching that they will chase him all the way to Berea in order to silence him from proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. Verse 13, when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too. And you can't see this in your English translations, but in the Greek, when the word too is used also, that's in the emphatic what Luke is trying to say is, you know, these guys were so driven that it wasn't enough for them to get rid of us in Thessalonica. They came to Berea too. He's emphasizing the motivation. We said this last week, and it bears repeating. The word of God always has an effect. It always does something. You hear it, and then when you understand it, it either draws you closer to Jesus or it fills you with rebellion. It fills you with antipathy and hatred towards the Lord. So they were not going to be content in Thessalonica just to have Paul leave. They were always going to chase him because they cannot bear the preaching of this word. 
Now that leads me to my last point of consideration this morning. The word of God always does something to us. It always changes us in some way. It either draws us closer to the Lord or pushes us further away from the Lord. It either fills us with a desire to surrender, to submit in humility, to draw near, to press in, to understand, or it causes us to depend on ourselves, to lean on our own understanding, to push back against God, to rebel against him. One way or another, it's doing something to us. We've come to an interesting point in the life of our Western civilization, in our culture, in which the virtue which is touted time and again is the virtue of, this is ironic, the virtue of humility. It comes masquerading in all kinds of different forms, but it isn't the true virtue of humility. Let me, let me stop and reiterate. It is a pseudo-humility. You present something from the scriptures. This is what the word of God says. And the response often comes back from those who would claim to be Christian. Yeah, but is that what the word of God really says? And if you've spent any amount of time in the word of God, you probably can't help but hear that response. Is that really what the Bible is saying? As an echo, as an echo of what Satan said to Eve in the garden. God said, don't eat this fruit, man. Did he really? I mean, is that really the meaning of that particular passage? Come now, let us sit down and engage in some critical theory. Let us pick it apart. What was the context in which he said this? I mean, what was your understanding at the time? Could it be that his meaning has actually shifted slightly? I mean, let's evaluate the rules of grammar or the meaning of words. Let's, let's really pick this apart, Eve. That's what we're doing today, and we're calling it scholarship. But that's not any different than what Satan did on day one. The word of the Lord has been revealed. God has spoken. And when God speaks to us, it is because he intends for us to have an understanding of him, who he is, what his will is for our lives. It is because he desires for us to walk with him. In modern evangelicalism, it is becoming increasingly popular for Christians to gather together, and I'm using this word loosely, Christians, to gather together in churches and to celebrate freedom in such a way that we castigate the word of God, we throw mud on it in order to obscure its meaning, in order to allow us to have a very widely diverging array of opinions on all manner of things. There can be nothing, I think, more clear-cut from the scriptures than that Jesus Christ died on the cross, that we would have life and have it abundantly. And yet we find in many churches, and even some of the larger churches here in Kamloops, within congregations there are disagreements regarding what it means to walk with God, and those disagreements go so far as clear-cut issues such as abortion. I never would have ever assumed that we would have individuals in churches calling themselves Christians for all practical intents and purposes looking like a Christian, going to Bible study, participating in worship, and yet come to the conclusion, which is impossible if you're holding this book up in high regard, that God would ever approve of the murder of a child from the womb. Never would I have ever thought such a thing could be, and yet it happens. It is happening today. It's happening here in Kamloops. 
All of this comes from this questioning of God's word. Yes, I know what it says, but what does that really mean? Church, two different individuals I draw your attention to. Rob Bell, very charismatic, very charming, persuasive speaker from these series of videos, NUMA videos. You may have seen one of them. Very dynamic, good teaching in most of them. But in every single one, there's always something you're like, huh, I'm not sure about that. Well, these were the kinds of people, Rob and his wife, Kristen Bell, who had a penchant for questioning the scriptures to get to the real meaning of things. Not too long ago, he released a book called Love Wins in which he denied the reality of hell. But he had made a practice of preaching from the Bible for so long that God be glorified when he questioned the reality of hell, the church that he founded questioned the necessity of him continuing on as their preacher. And that's just one of the beautiful things you find in this day and age. When you put someone on the scriptures, even if the one who puts you on the scriptures goes sideways, you never lose the scriptures. They eventually, this Mars Hill Church eventually dismissed Rob Bell from being their pastor. But you could detect warning signs in an issue of Christianity Today that came out about two years before, they were, before Rob was fired. The interviewer in this particular article interviewing the Bells begins to tell their stories. And the, the article goes on to say, quote, they found themselves increasingly uncomfortable with church. Quote, Life in church had become so small, Kristen says. Quote, it had worked for me for a long time, but then it just stopped working, end quote. The Bells started questioning their assumptions about the Bible itself. Quote, discovering the Bible was really just a human product, as Rob puts it, rather than the product of divine fiat. Quote, the Bible is still at the center for us. Please don't misunderstand, Rob says. Quote, but it's a different kind of center. As a teacher at a classical school, it's one of those moments where you're like, no. <laughs> the word center means something, and you can't say, oh, it's still at the center, employing the classical meaning of the word, but it's a different kind of center. In other words, it's not at the center. That's what you're saying, because center means center. This is how liberals operate. They twist language to their purposes. The Bible is still at the center for us, Rob says, but it's a different kind of center. We want to embrace mystery rather than conquer it. Sounds spiritual, doesn't it? Quote, I grew up thinking that we figured out the Bible, Kristen says, quote, that we knew what it means, but now I have no idea what most of it means, and yet I feel like life is big again. Like, life used to be black and white, right, wrong and right, but now it's technicolor. And if you're like a 20-year-old hipster kid straight out of high school, that sounds cool, but it will damn your soul to hell just as fast as anything else will. Brian McLaren, in his book, Generous Orthodoxy, likens the conventional notion of orthodoxy to a claim that we have the truth captured, stuffed, and mounted on the wall, end quote. He goes on to say that, quote, systematic theology is an attempt to have final truth, in scare quotes in his original book, final truth, 
nailed down, freeze-dried, and shrink-wrapped forever, safely stored in our freezers. Well, how can we believe in a Bible that we have no confidence in? Even what we have is taken away. You'll find both the Bells and Brian McLaren are no longer on the conference speaking tour anymore. But the scriptures reassure us that indeed what it says we can believe in. Luke chapter 1 verse 4, don't flip there, just listen. Luke says, I have written these things that you may have certainty regarding the things that you have been taught. Certainty from two different words. Epignosco, meaning concretely, to know something concretely. And asphalea, that is security, safety from outside attack. That word is chosen and inspired by the Holy Spirit, not on accident. Luke says, I have written these things that you may have certainty regarding what you have been taught about Jesus Christ. Take Acts chapter 1 verse 3. Acts chapter 1, verse 3. He presented himself alive to his disciples after his suffering, that is, after he'd been crucified, by many proofs, proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and nights and speaking to them about the kingdom of God. This word, tekmerion, means convincing proof, irrefutable proof, the kind of proof you wouldn't be ashamed to present in a court of law. Romans 5, 2, through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in certain expectation of the glory of God. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12, this is why I suffer as I do, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. This word, pytho, to be persuaded to a certainty regarding the truthfulness of something. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 10, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling, to make certain your calling and election. For if you practice these things, these qualities, then you will never fall. That Greek word, bibaios, verified, proven to be true. Or 1 John 2, 3, and by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Greek word, gnosko. It's in the present active indicative. It's a verb, meaning I stand in a present state of knowing. Also in that particular verse, egnokamen, perfect active indicative. It's in the perfect tense, meaning that you are in a permanent state of knowing, never not to know again. The scriptures are clear, explicitly clear. 1 John 5.15, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Again, in the perfect tense. And here's the question. If you don't know what the Bible is saying, how do you know that you have eternal life? Why would blind men listen to blind men? Put the question another way, why would blind men dare to try and lead other blind men? When someone comes to you and says, you know, I understand this is what you think the Bible is saying, but is that really what it's saying? The response should not be, oh, you don't know? Please tell me. It should be, oh, you don't know? Well, why are you bothering to talk to me about it then? It is amazing that so often... We allow those who will not in humility listen to the word of God, who clearly are one of those first three soils that even what they think they have has been taken away, 
to influence those of us who have hoped in Christ and trusted in his word. You want to be noble-minded? You want to hear the word of the Lord? Listen to the book. Let's pray, church. Father in heaven, we pray that as we leave here today, that we would be like the Bereans, Lord. That we would be noble-minded. That is, we would recognize that every time we are presented with the scriptures, we've received a precious inheritance, but one that is to be stewarded. God, our prayer is that as the Bereans search the scriptures daily to make sure, to make certain, to know that certain things were true, that we also would take care to search the scriptures daily to make sure that certain things were true. Father, we pray that for any who are here at First Baptist Church, that as regards your parable of the four soils, there would not be found among us one individual who falls into one of the first three soils. But Lord, we recognize we have a very great responsibility to hear you. And so God, we pray this morning that we would be like Bereans, that we would humble ourselves with a true and good heart, that we would seek understanding even if we are confused, that we would allow your word and your spirit to drive us to a certain knowledge and not allow us to linger in confusion. God, we pray you would do that through your word by your spirit this morning. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen. As you're able, would you please rise and sing with us?
church, as we leave this afternoon, my prayer, my urging is that you would take great care in how you hear the word of God, that you would take care to read it, to dwell upon it, to reflect upon it, to have it preached to you, to listen, and to press into all that it's saying. I'd like to invite Nolan Pasteur this morning to come and close us in prayer. Brother Nolan, would you please come? so much for the word that was preached here this morning, Lord. Um, the words of that last song, God, that we are bound for the promised land and that with the preaching of your word, there also comes the hearing of your word, Lord, as the pastor preached, that we have that responsibility, Father, to, to pray for soft hearts and open mind from you, God, that we would truly understand that as we go forth into the world that you've created, God, that our witness would be true, that the word and testimony that we share with others who need to hear would be true, Father. And we acknowledge, God, we humbly acknowledge that that only comes from you and through your grace. We thank you for that. We pray for your safety as we go forward this week, God, and um, for the kids going back to school as well, just for grace, Father, as we, um, as we get back into that everyday routine. We love you, Father, and we thank you for everything. In Jesus' name, amen. You're dismissed. Have a great week.